I'm Katie Tregidden, and this is Circular, a podcast exploring the intersections of craft, design, and sustainability. Join me as I talk to the thinkers, doers, and makers of the circular economy. These are the people who are challenging the linear take-make-waste model of production and consumption and working towards something better. In this series, we're talking about repair. One of the things that I love about restoration is it brings so many elements for people who have been put on, let's say, the scrap heap. If If you go into the educational system, it's kind of set up where if you don't get the A star plus or you don't get the grades, you, you're really going to amount to nothing. It's kind of what they're saying to you. If you get the A stars, you go into college, then you go to university, have 2.5 kids, and you're happily ever after. You've got a brilliant job. Whereas the way that I look at things, I look at sustainability as a whole. And some people look at it as, oh, you've got to separate your plastics from your paper and your glass and this and that. Sustainability includes people. Mm. And these young people need to have something put into them that allows them to see themselves as sustainable and a valued member within our society. Jay Blades is a modern furniture restorer, upcycler and eco-designer who's passionate about sustainability and the environment. The ethos behind his own furniture brand, Jay & Co, is to source vintage and beautifully crafted pieces of furniture and home accessories, then restore or reimagine them into works of contemporary design. And of course, he is now best known for presenting the BBC's Money for Nothing, The Repair Shop, and most recently, Jay and Dom's Home Fix. I've known Jay for a long time, so it was lovely to catch up for a proper conversation about a subject that is so close to both of our hearts. So Jay, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's always a joy. Um, I would like to start right at the beginning, if I may, and ask you a little bit about your childhood and how mending and repair showed up in your early life, if indeed they did at all. Well, well, first of all, thank you for having me. God blimey, I'm working with a legend. I'm speaking to someone I've known for a number of years and have truly admired and has supported me right from the get-go from when we started out of the dark and stuff. So, yeah, anytime you call and ask me to do something, I'm there. Oh, thank you, Jay. No problem. Um, But my childhood um the earliest memories of repairing i think i grew up in the council estate in hackney um and basically we didn't have much money and what used to happen you used to have to make do and mend. and one of the things that um was really apparent for me growing up is that you can do it you can repair stuff you can make i remember being given a frame by someone i think it was an on-caller it was an older brother older yeah everybody's your brother and your uncle in the council estates everybody can uh, tell you off Um, and basically I remember getting a frame and said oh you've got a bike now and I'm like there's no handlebars there's no seat there's no wheels there's no chain hold on there's no pedals it was just a frame Um, and I think over the series of months started getting bits and bobs from different places and then putting it all together and I think I had the most oddest bike on the council estate because it just <laughs> looked weird so my earliest memories I would say of um any form of repairing was making my own bike but then also we used to get a guy used to come around to the council estate and he had this big stone um and he used to sharpen your scissors and your knives and I remember my mum giving me a set of knives and there was just a load of kids queuing up there just like okay like we're getting these knives sharpened in this day and age you know health and safety they've said no you can't do that but 
I remember all of us kids just standing there, we're chatting to each other, and we give this guy some money. I think it was like 20 pence, and um, he'll sharpen all the knives for you. It was really cool. Amazing. I think it's interesting <laughs> what you said about that idea that mending and repair sort of gives you a sense of agency, you know, a sense that actually, well, well, I can sort this out myself, or at least I can learn how to. I yeah, think that's really yeah. important. Yeah, for me, growing up, it was all about that kind of, you had hand-me-downs, so you'd wear clothes that belonged to someone else. That was the original form of recycling, let's say. Um, and then you had people just giving you food. Um, not necessarily that you was poor. It was just like, it was a way of them saying, well, all I have to offer you is food. Um, they couldn't give you presents or anything like that. But this, this whole notion of making something, I remember that I had this... Um, I'm writing a book, and sorry to plug it, but a book comes out later on this year. And Plug away, what's it called? It's, it's called Making It, um, and it's my autobiography. And Amazing. I, When's it out? The 13th of May, it's out. Um, plug done. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I spoke to my mum, because I said to my mum, like, well, I was writing this book, and then I've got like an editor who's working with me to do it, and it was like, there was this thing in all of the Caribbean kitchens that I never knew what it was. And he goes, you've got to ask your mum about that. I said, yeah, I am. And what it was is in Caribbean houses, you had this orange peel. So imagine peeling an orange, but doing it all as one. So it just, you just got this whole strand of an orange peel. And it used to hang up in the kitchen and every house, my aunties, my uncles, any house I went to, everybody had one of these. And I was just like, I never knew what that was. And I grew up in the area where kids were, seen and not heard so you didn't really ask too many questions and then got to the ripe old age of 50 asked mum what is that orange peel that was in? she's like you remember that i said yeah what what is that i'd never asked you and she said well basically when you had an upset stomach or anybody had an upset stomach because it was dry you cut a piece you put it in some boiling water you drink it and it settles your stomach and i was like wow so there was remedies there was like medicine that you necessarily couldn't afford um, you can make it yourself. There was also just this whole, like, okay, you need a sofa. So you might get hand-me-down. And as you don't have the opportunity to go to an upholsterer or pay for more fabric, you throw over it. You just put a throw over it. And it became very, um, yeah, it will happen. It will do. That will do. Yeah. Even when the Saeed, I remember the chair, um, the springs or something went in it. And we just got a bit of board, boom, and just put it on there. And that was it. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. My my um my mum always calls my stepdad a bodger, which I think she means as an insult. But I think he's incredible yeah. because he can just, we've got this key in our bathroom door that used to, you know, it's like an old fashioned lock. And the keys yeah. fall out all the time. So he yeah. just attached a plug chain from the key to the door handle. So now when it falls yeah. out, it, and it's just, you know, those little moments of genius. That I think that <laughs> yeah. generation particularly you yeah, know yeah. if it was me I'd just buy a new lock for the door but I think <laughs> that generation had that um just that sort of engineering brain yeah. to see a problem and solve it with whatever they had around them and I think it's, yeah. it's inspiring for those of us who are interested in design right I know definitely and it's interesting to grow up in that era and see how relevant it is to design now it's just like wow that's that upbringing I've had um to me is brilliant and I think what was it your mum calling him a, a, a bodger? Bodgers are quite skilled. They right? used to be in, yeah, they used to be in the woods. They was the ones that brought all of the timber down from the woods um, after they've um, made it into something and sell it in the market. They would make the legs and what have yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, bodgers, yeah. 
yeah I think it's a compliment but I don't think no, it's yeah, it that way um so you mentioned out of the dark and this was a charity yeah. that you set up in High Wycombe to train disadvantaged young people in furniture restoration and you set that up with your wife at the time Jade um yes. tell me a little bit about how that initiative came about and sort of what its purpose was well basically out of the dark came about I was running a charity called well me and Jade my ex-wife um and as a matter of fact Jade says hello to you as well because she knows oh, I was doing nice. this today um but um we was running a charity called Street Dreams which was basically about getting young people away from crime so it was a fresh approach to stale problems um the council police social services fire service would come to us and say we've got a hot spot area where young people are committing crime and we need you to go in there and sort it out funding started drying up and we needed to continue working with those young people because one of the things that we operated when we started running all these charities it was a case of working ourselves out of a job which basically means that you work with a group of young people who are disengaged then they become engaged and where do they go with all that energy then we employ them and then they start to become the new youth leaders so as we wanted to continue working with these young people um jade came up with the wonderful idea of um, restoring old furniture because there was a desk that we had been donated by our um, I think it was BT gave us a desk and um, they said, oh, you can farm it on to the young people that you work with. And they used to give us laptops and what have you as well. And this young person had been given this desk, but he wanted to decorate it. Um, so he brought it to my back garden and we worked on it together. And Jade was in the kitchen and she's looking out for the window. She's like, that's a project idea. So she comes running out telling me and this young guy, I've got a brilliant project. It's a brilliant project and it's all based around this desk. And the young person looked quite shocked. He was like, <laughs> No, 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 this is my desk. Yeah, don't take, take it, it away. <laughs> what are you doing? And she's like, this project, I think it's brilliant. And the young, I can see the young person's getting what I said, Jade, can he take the desk home? Oh, yeah, 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 no problem. He can take it home. <laughs> but it's the idea based around that. You teaching young people how to do up furniture. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, so it came about along the lines of Jade just explaining <laughs> what she saw through the kitchen window. And then came up with the project idea of teaching young people how to revamp and restore old furniture. But with doing that, you need a teacher. And I'm just a, I was just DIY guy. I didn't really know much. I was on building sites and what have you. So I knew nothing about restoration. And what we then decided to do was go to the community and ask for their support. Luckily, we was based in High Wycombe at the time, which used to be the furniture capital. So when I went around to neighborhood watch schemes, um, WI groups, um, um, age concern, when we went around to all of these different retirees or the older generation, we was inundated with people offering to come and teach us how to crochet, how to cane, how to do this. How to, it was like unbelievable. So alongside the young people being taught, um, I was getting taught how to do these um, crafts. It was um, quite magical. Our oldest teacher, was a guy called Ken. He was based in a um, retirement home in um, Beaconsfield. And we used to take these chairs to him. Basically, I had a job. We had a job coming to out of the dark. This lady had eight Victorian um, oak chairs she wanted to recane him. We didn't know how to do it. We took the job on because one of our mentors said, accept any job and then figure out how you're going to do it after. Brilliant. So advice. we took the job on. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. <laughs> so we took the job on and then um, we had to find someone that can do this for us. So luckily we found Ken. 
So we used to take these chairs to um, the retirement home and they had a little shed for him. He wasn't allowed to come to us because of health and safety, but we was allowed to come to him. And it was probably the most magical lesson, um, education I've had in how to cane or recane a chair. And Ken would tell us stories. He'll watch us doing the work. And if you got it wrong, he'll give you a little smack with a piece of cane or and it would just be like, right, you've got that wrong. And it was just like, oh, okay, right. Um, yeah, it was quite funny. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. And how did yeah. how did the young people you were working with react to sort of seeing these pieces of furniture that had been written off, you know, kind of put in a box of broken and unwanted? How did the young people react to kind of seeing them brought back to life, given a new life being transformed? Yeah, I, the young people for me, how they reacted was very, very urban, I would say. When I first got in contact with them um, and they came from loads, of, we got referrals from all over, from social services, police, schools, um, self-referrals, you name it, we was getting them. Um, but the initial cohort, when I was explaining to them what we we're intending on doing, I couldn't tell them that we're going to teach them how to restore and revamp old furniture. Really and truly, that would not turn them on. But what turned them on was the case of, I'm going to show you how to make money from nothing. And they was like, hold on, what do I, that, that's impossible. We can't do it. And I said, well, you see that chair that someone's thrown away? And they're like, yeah, I was kicking that chair around the other day. It's rubbish. So we're going to turn that into a desirable object where we can see, well, I can see that's 150 pounds sitting there. And then they're engaged. They're like, whoa, 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 hold on. You're going to turn that chair that I threw against the wall into 150 pounds. And then when they see the transformation, and one of the things without the dark, which was quite beautiful, the young people saw the transformation from start to end. So they would see a broken piece of furniture. Then they would learn the skills on how to repair it and bring it up to date. Then they would learn about the fabric, different fabric designers and the textures and the kind of techniques that they utilize. Then they learn about magazines and they'd learn about bloggers like yourself um, who were very influential in then putting your product into the right market publications um, and um, furniture stores such as hills from they learn that they're learning about business but the transformation you could see the light bulbs constantly switching on in their head it was like bleep, bleep, bleep. and even when we had the opportunity of there was a photographer and i'm trying to remember kate davis that's her name um, and she came down and taught some of our young people how to take pictures she was a photographer at hills um, and now she's gone solo, but she taught our young people the composition, the lighting, the this and the that, and it was just, all of our young people were just switched on. Some of them liked photography more, some of them warmed more to restoration, and some of them loved HR, so dealing with that side of business. So it switched them on in more ways than one. And what, what did they go off and do? Are there young people that you're sort of still in touch with who've gone on to work in repair and restoration or was it more just kind of learning a skill set that they could apply elsewhere in life? I would say out of the 100% that we dealt with, there's probably 50% have gone into restoration, we've gone into furthering their education. So taught, learned, sorry, upholstery, um, have gone into project management, furniture, um, interior designing and stuff like that. A lot of them have just gone on to normal jobs. Um, mm. And I think with the kind of group of young people we used to have, them just getting out of bed was a bonus. Mm. Them not smoking or doing some low-level low level crime um, is, is a winner. I remember mm. when I was speaking to um, 
Sean Sutcliffe, and he came down to visit us at the dock. He he was asking these young people, well, who's that designer? Who made that chair? Who made this? And who did that? And Sean said to me, Jay, hold on a minute. These guys know nothing about the design. I said, Sean, this is not your average group of young people you're dealing with. These young people, some of them, um, they're here because the police have told them. These young people do crime. These people are smoking. They're, their parents can't even get them motivated. For them to actually be speaking to you is a bonus. Um, so all of that will come later. What we have to do is get them engaged to then be able to say, you can achieve something. You can achieve anything you want just because someone at the education authority has said that because you've got no qualifications, you are nothing. That yeah. isn't the case. So that's what I was explaining to do Sean. Do you think there's a, a metaphor, and don't let me put words in your mouth, tell me if I'm wrong, mm. but do you think there's a metaphor between kind of taking this furniture that's been written off and restoring it and the young people who perhaps have been written off by schools or by police and, and kind of giving them the skills to prove themselves? Yeah, it's, it, I, I, I agree with you 110%. I, I don't agree with them proving themselves. I agree with them proving themselves to themselves. Yeah. It's like one of the things that I love about restoration is it brings so many elements for people who have been put on, let's say, the scrap heap. If, you're, if you go into the educational system, it's kind of set up where if you don't get the A star plus or you don't get the grades, you, you're really going to amount to nothing. It's kind of what they're saying to you. If you get the A stars, you go into college, then you go to university, have 2.5 kids, and you're happily ever after. You've got a brilliant job. Whereas the way that I look at things, I look at sustainability as a whole. And some people look at it as, oh, you've got to separate your plastics from your paper and your glass and this and that. Sustainability includes people. Mm. And these young people need to have something put into them that allows them to see themselves as sustainable mm. and a valued member within our society. So that's what it was all about. It was saying, see that piece of chair that's over there and it's knackered, it's rubbish. Most people just kick it. We're going to turn that into something desirable. And to try and explain to the young people that there is a direct connection between that desirable, like well, that item that was rubbish and now it's desirable, it's exactly the same as you. I'm going to give you all of the skills that you're going to put in your rucksack, that when you go to a job interview or you go somewhere, you're going to feel, feel proud of what you've achieved. And what you've achieved is the unachievable, because most people have told you you're not going to amount to anything, mm -hmm. but you're able to rest, restore something, restore it, bring it back to life, or redesign it, or even take a beautiful picture, which allows it to be sold, or communicate with um, somebody in media. That means we're going to get a piece in a magazine. That is just as important as restoring. Mm, yeah and I, th yeah. I think that's a really important point that's often missed in the environmental movement you know I, that's why I love the triple bottom line model which is people planet and profit you know of course yeah. you've got to make profit if you're a profit making business you know the yeah. planet bit I think people are increasingly coming round to but there's also the people you know we can't have environmentalism at the cost of people we kind of have those things I think are, are really intersectional actually I think they're really related definitely 110 percent I think that I've never heard of that one before, but I'm going to take that because that's really good. And you always come out with these just the profound ways of seeing. And oh, it wasn't me things. that came up with that. I <laughs> no, but your knowledge, you, you have all of this and you just have it at your, your fingertips. Um, but yeah, people are very, very important. Um, profit is important. But sometimes I would say, no, I, I think people and planet are very important to me, especially when it comes to community work, because I worked in the community sector and 
really there is no profit in, the, in working within the community. The community, you're doing it for the love um, and you're kind of doing it for people you're never going to see. So mm. I have this kind of way of functioning now that I'm here on this planet to influence people I'm never going to meet. And that means that I have to leave a legacy, create something that can be taken over by someone else or redesigned by someone else. And then they would say, well, I kind of got that idea from that person, but this is what I've done with that idea. And that to me is what future proofing is all about. Let's make sure that the future is bright for people who are not here yet, because if we continue the way that we're continuing in this planet, um, we're not going to leave them a pretty problem. It's going to be quite messy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So after Out of the Dark, there was a bit of a perfect storm in which mm. your marriage broke down, Out of the Dark lost funding, and you became yeah. homeless for a little while. Are you yes. happy to talk about kind of that period of your life and, and how you moved on from it? Absolutely happy. I think the, the thing that I had for a number of years, I was running Street Dreams with Jade, uh, my ex-wife, and then running Out of the Dark. We are very successful. Um, but then I um, messed up and basically didn't have the kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? I didn't have our relationship at the forefront of my kind of existence. Right. So when I fell down, I had to leave. I left the family home because basically I was being naughty. I had I, I, I cheated and that wasn't great. And it was a case of, right, I'm in this space. My brain was just in a space where it was totally messed up. And I remember getting in the car and I remember driving. And before I turned the ignition, I, I remember thinking to myself, I was sitting in the car, must have been about... It felt like a day, but it was only for like five minutes. And I remember saying to myself, well, look, you are so important to the community. You've helped so many people. Now you're so strong for so many different people. If you turn around and you ask someone for help, what would they think of you? You can't ask the people who you've helped for help because they right. would look at you like, hold on a minute. You're the one that's always strong for us, but how can I help you if you've helped me? In the it was a really weird conversation I was having myself in the car and it just totally messed up so I'll take you back a little bit what had happened I had cheated on my relationship with Jade so Jade didn't want to continue out of the dark with myself Jade right. dealt with all of the finances the whole shabam I dealt with the young people the practical running um, of out of the dark so out of the dark started going downhill because of that because there was one side that wasn't functioning then it had to come to a complete halt. We had a number of young people that was working for us um, that I had to make sure that they had received their redundancy money and all that kind of good stuff. And I remember saying to a young person, once all of this is sorted, I'm going to go missing for a few days because this is a lot for me to take on. Mm. And I got in the car and I had that little conversation with myself that who could I ask for help? And I equaled no one. So I got in the car and I drove. And I didn't even know where I was driving to. All I know is I left my phone. I left everything in the house and I just got in the car and drove. And it was only when I got to, I think I was in the M40 or the M5, the car started flashing. There was a red light, petrol um, was coming on. And I pulled into this petrol station, put some petrol in. And then I saw a like a, a retail part that had like a Dixon's and some other bits. And there was a McDonald's there. I remember getting a double cheeseburger and I sat <laughs> in this car and I just went to sleep after I ate it. And I woke up the next day, people were hustling, bustling. And I remember sitting in that car park 
And I was looking at all these people going by their day-to-day activities. And it was almost as if I was an observer. I, I, I couldn't see what I should be doing the next day. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't function. It was like my body was numb. Everything was like dead. I was, I was like a zombie. I don't know what a zombie's like, but it kind of like that is what you know. You're just like the Walking Dead. That's what mm. I felt like. But I was just sitting in the car. Um, I think it was only I sat in that car for almost about a week, um, and I remember getting out. And apologies, it gets a bit crude, but you'll get get the gist of this. I sat in this car for a week. I hadn't washed, I hadn't cleaned or anything. I'm in the same clothes. And I remember getting out and going to the toilet because I used to go to the toilet in McDonald's. Um, and I remember looking around like, what was that? And my smell had become a presence. <laughs> it was like, I turned around. I was like, who's that? You know, when you feel someone beside you, you can, like if someone's walking too close to you, you can feel them. You just know they're over each other. You're a bit close, mate. You want to back up? I turned around thinking there was someone there. It was my body odour. And it had such a stench. It, it, it created Sorry, this own postcode. I just laugh. It's not You funny. should laugh. You should laugh. Because now that I'm thinking about it, I was just like, it really shocked me out. Because I, I turned around and thought someone was there. It was the smell of me. Um, and I was like, oh, that's quite bad. So I remember that I had some money in my pocket. And there was a hotel up the road. And I said, right, I'm going to go in there and get washed up. Because I need to. If my smell has got its own postcode, I need to get rid of that. <laughs> it's, it's not good. Um, so then I drove to this hotel. Um, I went to a, a shop, got some shampoo, um, shower gel stuff, and then took myself to this hotel. And I remember that the, the police, Jade had reported me um, uh, missing, and the police were on the lookout for me. But it was the only time my number plate had come up on the radar. So as it came up on the radar, they knew to send the police to where I was just to make sure I was okay. Um, and at the same time of the police doing that, uh, Jade contacted Gerald, who's a businessman in Wolverhampton, um, who has now become like my brother and um, my kind of guardian angel that looks after me. So he came and got me um, and I was sitting in this car. Now, all this stuff, I had my shower gel, but I still didn't have a bar. I hadn't had a wash yet. The police came. He came. It happened so quick. It was like, oh, man. All right. I've got to be interviewed by the police. And then Gerald came and it's like, come in the car I want to speak to you it's like okay but I've got this shower gel I wanted to take a shower like I booked this room at this hotel so I sat in his car and I was um chatting to him and then I just started crying um first time ever I've ever cried in front of a man in front of a black guy um and never had anybody he never took the mickey out of me so I'm sitting in this car and I'm crying away like proper I mean crying like full-on crying like a baby cried snot crying snot crying everything (laughs) but it was unreal and then he's he said said to me and i'll never forget this i've got a job for you i was like hold on a minute my my body odor's got its own postcode it's sitting in the back of your car i'm here with a shower gel snot running down my nose i'm crying i know i don't look the best and you just offered me a can't you see i'm crying and he 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 just couldn't he, he just like no I didn't say it to him, but I was thinking, I said, yeah, I've got a job for you. There's this project I've got, a community project, and I need you on it. You know what? Let's go. And he just drove me to these offices where there was this, um, he probably had about 15 people in there. He runs um, high-end, uh, what's it, clothing um, shops. 
So these people all dressed up to the nines, all smelling beautiful, looking fabulous. Now there's Stigger the Dump walking in with his po- postcode body odor walking in. And it's like, he's introducing me to all these people. And I'm just like, this is extremely awkward because I know if I can smell my odor, what are they going to think? And um, yeah, it just, <laughs> I never forget that. But to answer your question, because that was a long way of answering it, how did I get myself back? I got myself back via the community. So Gerald, I lived with him for two weeks and then he put me to live with his mum and his stepdad. And they they gave me life again. They reborn me. So they nourished me. They loved me. They cared for me um, and built me back up to where I am today. And I'm still in the family's arms. I'm still going around and having dinner every Monday, Wednesday and Saturday. We have Saturday soup. Mum, as I call her, she's my second mum. She makes sure that I'm all right. I'm resting and I'm not working too hard. Um, Dad is a guy that she is with and he's the first man I've ever called dad. And um, he teaches me how to cook and he teaches me just how to be a dad, basically. Um, And it's, yeah, it's really, really nice. So it's it's a massive leap that I've made in explaining it, but it's, there's so many things that have happened to me. I can't even believe it myself. It's just like, really? 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 It's just too much. I'm trying a few different ways of supporting the podcast this time around. So we'll be back after a short break. And thank you so much to everybody who helped to make this season happen. If you're a designer maker, here's what I want you to know. None of this is your fault. Climate change, ocean acidification, falling biodiversity levels, none of it but you do get to be part of the solution. And the best part, that gets to be creative, collaborative, and filled with wide-eyed curiosity. Remember that? Visit katietrugiddon.com forward slash membership and leave your eco guilt at the door. Find a community of fellow travellers, clear, actionable steps you can take today and all the support you need to join the circular economy. Visit katietrugiddon.com forward slash membership. I'll see you there. If you've never heard of Sugru.com, then you're in for a treat. It's the online repair shop for people looking to fix everything from clothes and homewares to kitchen appliances and charging cables. Pick up some Sugru moldable glue along with other innovative products. Fixing is good. It's good for us and good for the planet. Do you you now feel differently about, you sort of started this story by saying you'd helped so many people you didn't feel you could ask for help? Has your perspective on that changed now? Most definitely. My perspective on asking for help is like, I'll ask. Um, I think the first time I asked Gerald for, I asked him for £100. It took me a week to ask him for £100 to build up the courage to ask him. Um, And then when I asked him, he said, yeah, no problem. And he gave me the money and he held my hand. All of a sudden he's given me the money. And I thought, oh, here we go. There's going to be a catch. And he said, um, you never have to worry about asking me for money. I will support you until you're ready to fly. And I didn't even tell him that I was, it took me a week, but he knew it was a big deal. Um, yeah. And he's been supporting me ever since. He's, he's still in my life as, as his mum, who I classify as mum and his stepdad, who I call my dad. It's like, yeah, they're, they're supporting me 110%. So I will always ask for help. And he, is someone that I've asked for guidance on the financial issues and just just stuff because when it when you're 
not necessarily a they call me a celebrity, but when you're a celebrity, there's a lot of stuff that comes your way. And all I really want to do is be in my workshop, dancing with some paint and some fabric and just having a great time. Um, but you have to make decisions on a load of other stuff. And it's kind of like, oh, really? Do I have to? And yeah, um, yeah he helps yeah. me out with that. Yeah, it's important to have people you can talk to about that stuff, I would imagine. Mm. Um, so then the BBC came knocking on your door. Tell yeah. me about tell me about that call. Was was Money for Nothing the first the first show? No, Money for Nothing was the first. What happened was when I was out of, out of the dark, the Guardian newspaper came and done a video of us, um, and that video went viral. There was a big story. Well, there's a little bit of a story. I try and speed it up about the Guardian. They emailed Jade and said, "Oh, we want to do this video of out of the dark. I think it's really great." Blah blah blah. And so, okay, cool. So they sent this guy to come down and film it. So he comes down, they said, we need five days with you. Cool, five days, really good. Capture a lot of stuff, blah, blah, blah. Comes down on the first day, he's got no camera. So I'm like, okay, cool, no problem. Spoke to Jen, said, he's got no camera. Oh, no, don't worry, probably second day. He's just filled in it all out. Second day he comes down, he's got no camera. I said, Jade, what's going on here? I thought you said they're going to film us. Like, there's no camera, second day. She goes, don't worry, he'll come on the third day, he'll bring a camera. If, I said, I know what, he might have one of those little secret cameras that's in his tie or something. And she said, no, 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 they're, they're going to really film. He comes down on the third day, he still has no camera. So I said to him, excuse me, mate, like, I thought you are making a doc, you're filming, like, what's going on? And he said, really confidently, what I need to film hasn't happened. And I was like, you are unbelievably confident. So the, he said... I'm bringing my camera tomorrow and the next day and I will film and it will be fabulous. <laughs> like a true artist, this guy filmed in the next two days and he captured some of the most um, brilliant stuff. It went viral on The Guardian. All of these TV companies started contacting us left, right and centre and it was insane. Jade was inundated with offers for me to be on this show, that show, blah, blah, blah. So to cut a long story short, Money for Nothing came along and done a pilot um, of the Money for Nothing show. And um, we also had the guys who, the Studio Lambert, they came down and done a pilot. There was also, I think it was Potato, loads of people came down and done loads of different pilots and wanted me to be in loads of different stuff. But then Out of the Dark um, folded. I came to Wolverhampton and Money for Nothing got back in contact with me to say they've got the go-ahead to start this show. Would I like to be part of it? So I was an artisan, first of all, on the first two series of Money for Nothing. And then I became a presenter on series three. And I'd done it up until, I think it's series nine, I did it until. And then in between that time, I had done a show with Gok One, uh, Philly House for free. And um, then Repair Shop came calling. Now you're presenting the Repair Shop, co-presenting yes. Jay and Dom's Home Fix. And yes. hanging out with Mary Berry on Christmas specials. <laughs> I tell you what, that, when, when that phone call came through to me, agent, I was just like, I'm doing it. She just said, there is a possibility of you working on Christmas special with Mary. I said, I'm doing it. You don't even need to say the second name. I'm doing it. I know who it is. Let's do it. Um, that was a real joy. And to find that Mary Berry is, I mean, such a fan of the repair shop. I mean, she was explaining episodes to me that, I almost forgot about it. Amazing. Saying, Mary, really? She said, yeah, we go home. I go home. My husband's got 
my drink there and he's there and we sit down together and we watch. If I'm not there, if I'm filming, it's the next day. He never watches it without me. I was like, really, Mitch? She's like, you don't, yeah, I'd say this. She did say this to me. I was the first person she asked for on that Christmas special. You know, when they asked her, who do you want? She's like, I want Jay. Amazing. You've got to think of other people. You've got to think of other people as well. Oh, yeah, you can pick them, but I want Jay. Um, it, was, it was quite cool, actually, when she said that to me. She's a, she's a gorgeous lady. And I mean, when there are people in TV who surpass their kind of reputation, I see her as a nice person on TV, but when you meet her in the real flesh, someone like her doesn't have to be nice because they've lived long enough beyond that point of being nice. Um, but she is so genuine. Um, yeah, unbelievably beautiful. I'm so but glad me, to hear it. Yeah, me being on Mary Berry, come on, crazy. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you the, the, the biggest scoop ever. I have Mary Berry's mobile number. Imagine that. I mean, you've Little made it, boy, Jay. No, the guy from Hackney, he's got Mary Berry. He's like, I can just call her. On he's speed like, dial. What? <laughs> Amazing. Now, alongside oh. all the TV work, you do also run J&Co, through which yes. you create statement furniture. And I'd love to talk to you about your, your approach to restoration, because I think it would probably get purists a little hot yeah. under the collar. You're Very not one so. for putting sort of classic <laughs> pieces back to how they once were. You're more likely to paint a leg, a bright colour or pick a really bright up. Tell me about, defend yourself to the purists. <laughs> I can defend, to tell you the truth, the, the, the hardest thing to do is to defend myself to the purists. The purists have a valid statement. Um, but one of the things I would say to the purists is this, that the majority of the items I obtain were going into landfill. A lot of these items are kind of like, they're, people don't want them so there are purists who say you've got to leave it as it is it's okay i can leave it as it is is anybody going to buy it is that going to keep the kind of um sustainability going i need this to go back into um the market i need to compete with my competitors and um for the purist my competitors are the likes of ikea john lewis furniture village and dfs these are the guys that are doing things at a volume that basically I have to follow suit in what they're doing. So if I kept it as a purist um, item, I'm, my market is very, very small then. So I need to branch it out. And also I have some form of creativity and I think my creativity should be allowed to be on an item that um, I think needs it. Because some of these items, some of them are a little bit tired. And I'm not talking the purest of the purest, not talking like um, a classic Eames or a classic, um, uh, what's his name? I really enjoy Ernest Race, his furniture, the original upcycler. They, their furniture is just to die for. But when you're trying to reintroduce something into the modern market and make people get the notion of why something should be pure, the frame is still pure. The, the, the essence of the design, I don't necessarily change it. I update it with the fabric and the foam that needs to adhere to current kind of specifications. Um, and not everybody wants to live in a, a house that looks like a museum. Not everybody wants that kind of style. So some people want that little bit of quirkiness, that little bit of, oh, that looks quite smart. I don't know why it looks smart, but that looks, ooh, that looks different. Where'd you get that from? Can I get one? No, you can't. There's only one in the world. And that's what I create. And I think with the purists, 
you can have so many, let's say, Robin Day chairs that are all the same and not everybody's going to want a Robin Day chair in their house. They, they might want it in a completely different colour. It doesn't suit their colour scheme. We are all individuals. And as we're all individuals, we should be able to create our individuality with anything that we create. And that could be writing, reading. It could be painting, drawing. You can bring your own flavour to it. So I've met so many purists along the way, not only for me putting the fabric or painting some particular chairs, but even just doing upholstery. I put one button on a chair. The amount of upholsterers that have said to me, you can't do that. That's not the way to do it. You've got to put five, three or seven. Why are you putting one? I said, because I want to. But it's not right. We don't teach that in the books. I said, I'm not teaching it in a book, never. Neither. I just want to do it this way. And they're like, it's not right. They shouldn't do it that way. Just one button on a chair. No, it's not heard of. <laughs> but it's it's kind of cool. I love that everybody is different and everybody has a valid opinion. Um, and everybody has the right to do things their way. And that's all I'm doing it. I'm just doing it my way. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I remember <laughs> the first time I saw, and I can't remember, it was, a, it was a designer chair. I can't remember which designer it was. And you mm. painted one leg red and put this yeah. really bonkers fabric on it. And I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> but then my next thought was, I kind of like it. I like, I like the almost the audaciousness of it. Just the fact that, yeah. you know what, this person designed this and now I'm designing the next phase of its life. So I get to pick what that looks like. Exactly, yeah. And you can pick what it looks like and then it goes on to live another. And the beauty of it is this, a lot of the designs came from a mistake. So the two, two to, the one painted leg, it came from two different mistakes. There was a young person called Travis who used to work on Out of the Dark. We used to give him a chair to paint. And without fail, I don't know what it was with Travis. He would paint three legs and leave one leg. So paint the whole chair and then like, he just left this one leg. And he's like, finish, Jake, next one. And get, like, Travis, you ain't finished it. Like, nice done, I need the next chair. And everybody started laughing like, Travis left a leg again. Like he would always leave one leg. And then there was a time when I was in Wolverhampton and um, I think it was money for nothing I was working on at the time. And they gave me these Urkel chairs and I painted them and I always paint the light color first. And then I, I knew I was gonna paint all of the legs black apart from one was gonna be blue, I was thinking of. Um, but no, first of all, I was gonna paint all of them blue. And I remember painting this one chair leg blue on an Urkel. And then the phone rang, I was on the phone, I looked at the chair and I was like, that looks beautiful. And then personally, I said, what are you talking about? What looks beautiful? I said, I've got to go. And I put the phone down. And it basically, the design came to me, that one leg and then all the rest black. And what it does, especially with this Urko um, stick back chair, it made you really look at the design. Because once you highlighted one leg, it made you identify all of the different components in it that made it, and Urkel to me, I, I love their designs, um, especially the original ones, that it's like the Meccano of furniture. You can see exactly how it's put together. You can see why it was put together and why that joint is needed there to make that strong that then balances the whole chair. By painting one leg, it made me see the designer work out how he puts all that stuff together. And I, that's all I wanted everybody else to see. And that's what it did. That's how it came about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's really <laughs> smart. I like that. Um, 
right, we need to dig into the repair shop a little bit more. Of course for, anybody, we do. for anybody who hasn't seen it, and I'm assuming they're in the minority, it centers around the idea of members of the public bringing family heirlooms or sentimental items that are broken to the Wealdon Downland Living Museum to be repaired by one of the specialist craftsmen. And you're yeah. sort of overseeing this whole thing. Um, yeah. Now, as a pitch, that doesn't sound that engaging, and yet somehow it's magical. What is it about that show, do you think, that has really sort of captured the hearts of the British public? What makes it so special? I think what makes it so special is its community, its love, and it's doing something for someone that you don't know. It's caring for people. And it's the celebration of craft. It's, back, it's going back to a bygone era where we're looking at repairing things. It's like a lot of people now have grown up in this consumer society, which is, oh, it's broken. Buy another one. We'll get it the next day. Delivery. Um, it will mm. come. Or we can just click this button and here it is. Whereas everybody, all the experts we've got in the repair shop, these guys and girls, they are master craftspeople and they're able to turn something around, which is not only an item, but is a family member that is steeped in so many memories for that person. That's like, wow. And you're quite right. I, I think when you pitch an idea like the repair shop, no, no one's going to want to see anybody repairing something. Really? so exciting about yeah i know it's their family heirloom but it's quite boring and but really when you look at the show um it has grown from being on bbc2 um and then went to bbc1 on the daytime then it's gone up to prime time it just shows for its popularity that people want it we've got up to about seven million people watching the show and it's like mm. that's a lot of people that are interested in someone repairing something like really it's like you're really interested. And really what they are really interested in is recycling because that's all we're doing really on the show. We're not throwing this family heirloom into a landfill site. We're showing that you can repair it, which means it has been recycled to do something which it was born to do again. But the biggest thing it's recycling doing is those memories and the loving memories are just unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, I think I think there's there's real power in the stories that an object gathers over time. Um, you know, something that's new doesn't it might yes. be shiny and clean, but it's got no stories yet. And I think there's that, you know, the family stories and the memories that come out in that show are really powerful. So from a sustainability perspective, what can we learn? What can we all learn from the repair shop, from your work with Jay and Co, perhaps even looking back to, to Out of the Dark? What are the what are the sustainability lessons? I think the sustainability lessons for me and anybody I speak to, it's all about community. And we should be looking on our doorstep first and foremost, because I know there is a global thing that we're trying to address with regards to everybody, um, the overuse of plastics and so on and so forth. It, it, I know it's killing the planet, but locally, something like the repair shop, even out of the dark, has shown me that you can come together as a local community and you can achieve unbelievable things. You can achieve something for your, your, your immediate community, first and foremost, but then it branches out. So the repair shop started from an idea of the creative director um, or the creative team at Ricochet, the production company who does it. The young lady took her chair, her mum's chair, when her mum passed away, to an upholsterer to be reupholstered. When she got the chair back, she fell in love with the chair. But what really clicked is the upholsterer saved the fabric that her mum used to sit on and framed it 
And she broke down in tears. And very similar to Gerald, what she did was, that's a TV idea. The guy's like, no, it's a frame of your mum's fabric that used to be on a chair. And she's like, no, 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 I've got it. This, that, this is it. And she came up with the repair shop. And she came up with a repair shop because of the way she felt. Mm. So that in itself started from family members, community, this upholster doing something a little bit out of the ordinary, which he wasn't supposed to do, but he did it because it's a nice thing. And how it made her feel then allowed her to create a TV show, which then affects 7 million people, which then can affect even more because it's all about locally, what can we do? And if we can reach out to do something for someone, whether that is repairing an item or helping someone across the road, it's as simple as that. That mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It can start small. So sustainability, a long answer, but it's about community. Yeah, and I, I think that's really powerful because, you know, climate change is this huge, complicated problem and no one of us or no group of us is going to solve it on its own. So I think we all almost need to work out what's the little bit we can do you know, locally within our own skill set, within our own communities to, to kind of move towards a, a more circular economy. How do you feel that opinions towards repair and mending are changing? I think they've almost gone back full circle to the times where I used to have that guy with the stone come around my council estate. We have a number of, um, they're not related, but they've got similar name. There are repair caps springing up all up and down the land where yeah. you can take your toaster or your other bits and bobs for these people to, to repair them. Um, there's men in their sheds out there doing their bit. Um, and I think this bug of kind of like the mate doing men culture has definitely come back. The repairing has definitely come back because mm. even if you look at the rise of upcycling, DIY, especially during the first lockdown, I think B&Q sales went through the roof because everybody's just doing it themselves. So there is this real um, drive back to just making stuff and repairing and just getting it done. Um, let's not buy it. Let's not make those big companies even more powerful because we keep on clicking that button and we get it the next day. Let's, I can fix that shelf. No problem. I could do that. I could do that. So yeah, repairing has definitely come back. And what do you think the future holds? Do you think this is a, a sort of trend that's been driven by the fact we're all spending a lot more time at home? Or do you think this is a, a sort of genuine long-term shift? It's a definite long-term shift. This is a, it's a way of thinking. I think what the COVID has done for us um, has basically got us to sit down and really check out what we're doing to this planet and what we're doing to our immediate environment, which is your house first and foremost, and then outdoor environment. The way that we was clapping for um, nurses on a Thursday um, the same way DIY has been going through the roof, people are really consciously thinking, hold on a minute, I think I might have consumed too much before. Now it's time to just put back into my community and my house. So, yeah, it's, I don't think it's a trend that's going to go away once COVID is lifted. Doubt it very much. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dave. That's been absolutely. Oh, we finished. We're oh, done. What? We're oh, done. come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suspect we could both sit here and talk about this stuff until the cows. Home, but... <laughs> Thank you. you. No, you're more than welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, can I ask you to leave a review and perhaps even hit subscribe? I'll be honest, I don't really understand how the algorithm works, but I'm told those two actions really help other people to find the podcast. So that would be amazing. Thank you. 
You can find me on Instagram at katietregidden.one. You can subscribe to my email newsletter via a link in the show notes. And if you're a designer maker, you should really join my free Facebook group, Making Design Circular. See you there. This episode was produced by Sasha Huff. So thank you to Sasha, to October Communications for marketing and moral support, to Sugri for their sponsorship, and to you for joining me. You've been listening to Circular with Katie Tregidden. 